Good to see you. My name's Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. Glad to be with you this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. It's been uh, a little bit since I've been able to preach in this room. I'm always glad to do it. And uh, I enjoy preaching in both rooms uh, for different reasons. I mean, in this room, if I could say what I like about it for me, uh, selfishly, is I, I get to be a little preachy in this room. You know what I mean? And, and why not? I mean, after all, we have stained glass windows. We have banners. We have a choir. We have fire. Those rhymed. And over there, I get there, over there, I get a podium. Here, I get a pulpit. And not just any pulpit. Have you seen this thing? It's the Cadillac of pulpits. Other churches are great, but do they have this bad boy? I don't think so. So, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to be here. Last time I was here, just, uh, just a, a PSA for us. Uh, last time I was here, I told the story about a certain boy who had borrowed a certain uh, peppermints from a certain church and put them in his room to give to people to show hospitality. I just wanted to give you an update on my son and how the situation is going. Uh, um, since then, we have received uh, a box on our front porch, anonymously given with two very large bags of peppermints. So thank you to the anonymous peppermint giver helping our son grow in hospitality and, and keeping him from stealing in church. <laughs> Loving us well. I appreciate that. We are in the final segment of our series called Simple Prayers. Simple Prayers. Now, all of these have been actually very simple prayers. They're easy to say, they're easy to pray, they're easy to memorize, but I want to caution us just a second that they are simple prayers, but they're not necessarily simplistic prayers. In fact, think about what we've prayed. We've prayed, heal me, search me, speak to me, guide me, and today we're going to look at the simple prayer, send me. But the reality is this, I don't want us to rush into, just because they're simple to understand, simple to say, simple to pray, I don't want us to rush into them too quickly because the reality is, is these prayers, if we mean them, may actually change the trajectory of our life. A simple prayer may not lead to a simple path. Speak to me, guide me, Search me. We may be inviting God to change us in such a way that we are called to relate differently to our family, our friends, our loved ones, the world. So I just don't want us to flippantly approach these prayers because they are simple. Um, they may change significantly the course of our life. And today we will see, see that in the prayer, send me. Send me is a little bit different from the other prayers in the sense that it is a response prayer. It is not the initiating prayer. You know, guide me is initiating prayer. I'm going to pray this for you to guide me. I'm going to start the conversation. Search me. I'm going to start the conversation. Send me is a response prayer. The first cause is an encounter with God. And I think this, send me is the answer to what is the proper response to an encounter with God? 
what is the proper response to an encounter with God? I got a little bouncy. When I, when I get preachy, I get a little bouncy. You know what I'm saying? So what is the proper response to an encounter with God? It is this prayer of surrender, send me. I came to faith at an early age, gave my life to Jesus uh, as an eight-year-old. And, and if you gave your life to Jesus early on, you know that you continue to grow and develop and there's things you don't know. You don't, you don't have any idea what that means. Uh, but you start to grow and start to realize there's more that it means and new stages of surrender and so on. I remember that when I was in college, uh, there was this, this movement for college students that started out of Texas and it was called Passion. And the first passion they had, I believe, was in uh, 99, and it was outside of Austin, Texas, and there was about 3,000 college students there, and they had these speakers come in, and they do this worship, and they, it was in this large arena, and I didn't know about that one, but I had heard about the second one, and so our college ministry wanted to go to this, so we went to Dallas, which is about six hours away from where I was living in Amarillo, Texas, where I was raised, so we went to Passion, the second one, and it went from 3,000 students to 11,000 students. And we were there in this large arena, and I had heard, I got to hear preaching in a way that I'd never heard before. And I got to experience worship in a way that I hadn't got to experience it before. And I remember after several days of being in such a God-saturated place, I walked down to the front. Everything was over. Everything was done. People were packing up and loaded. And me and several friends walked down to the front, and we just kneeled at the altar, and we just wept for what seemed like hours, and we had these conversations about my life's never going to be the same now. I don't know what just happened. The only way I can describe it is that I had an encounter with the living God. And I remember going home, and sometimes we want to show on the outside, like what's going on on the inside, uh, whatever that may be. And I remember going home, and I shaved my head, and I fasted for three days, and I was like, oh, God did something crazy I remember having lunch with my parents at this little place called Home Plate Diner. Home Plate Diner was great. It was a little hole in the wall, and they had like a chicken finger special for like $2.50, chicken fingers, fries, and some gravy and a soda. That's beside the point, but it was a fantastic place to go have lunch if you were on a budget. And so I was sitting there with my parents, and I remember saying this. The only way I can describe what happened is that I had an encounter with the living God, and here is my response. God, wherever you want me to go with the rest of my life, I'll go. God, whoever you call me to be with the rest of my life, I'll be. Whatever you call me to do with the rest of my life, I'll do. If you want to send me as a missionary to unreached people in the jungle or a 1040 window, I will do that. God, if you want me to be single for the rest of my life, <laughs> I'll do it. And I remember this surrender of God, send me, send me. And I think send me is the only proper response to an encounter with the living God. We're going to look in Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to see that Isaiah had an encounter with the living God, and he responded in much the same way. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 10, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the word of God? In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The word of God for the people of God. You You may be seated. There's a lot to unpack in this passage, but if we are going to be good sent ones, if we are going to be effective sent ones, the first thing we need is a new reverence. We need a new reverence for who God is. It says that in the year that King Uzziah died, and most scholars think that Uzziah died in 740 B.C., and if it's about 740 B.C., that's the 8th century B.C., and that means that they are under, that Israel is under the split kingdom, a divided kingdom. So David was a good king, the king par excellence. He didn't quite uh, finish that great as he wanted to, as he probably should have. And he had a son named Solomon. Solomon, as her wisdom, arguably the wisest man that ever lived. But he did not finish well either because he intermarried with foreign wives. Now, God was not against intermarriage per se. It was the religion of the other nations that God was concerned about. And if Solomon was to intermarry, those wives would bring in the other religions and Israel would be mixed. Uh, in their worship, and they would worship false gods. This happened under Solomon, and God said, I told you not to do this, and because you did this, I'm going to divide the kingdom, but because of David, I'm not going to do it to you, I'm going to do it to your sons. So Solomon had two sons, and the kingdom was divided. I'd always wondered when I'm looking through the Psalms and through the prophets, why is there an Israel and why is there a Judah? It's because there's two kingdoms, because the kingdom was divided because of Solomon's unfaithfulness. Israel is the northern kingdom, Judah was the southern kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital. The prophets were God's mouthpieces to call his people back to covenant fidelity. Think less of an angry, judging God and think more of a broken-hearted lover whose spouse has been unfaithful. And God is pleading with his people, I know what's best for you. We made covenant vows. Return to me. Come back to me. I will forgive you. I will heal you. The people of God refuse. They continue in idol worship, which was spiritual adultery. And Isaiah is one of these prophets sent to the people of God to say, return to God. Remember your covenant vows with all your heart. 
And he sees the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and exalted. Already there's a bit of wordplay here. Because it says, I saw the Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. But you know there's another spelling for Lord in the Old Testament, capital L, all caps, L-O-R-D, right? So what he's saying here is this. Lord, lowercase wise, is a title for God. It's a title for God that would have been uh, said Adonai, and it means this. It means sovereign, monarch, a.k.a. king. There's an irony and a wordplay here going on in the Hebrew, which we often miss, but it's basically this. In the year that the fallen and broken king died, I saw the eternal king. In the year that the king, in the line of kings, who is supposed to keep covenant faithfulness and show us how to be a representative on God's behalf by being faithful to the law of Moses, in the year that that sinful king died... I saw the perfect king, the eternal king, the true sovereign king, the one who reigns forever and ever, and he was high and exalted, and I saw him seated on a throne. Now, most people think that this is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. This is Jesus without his veil of flesh, sitting on a throne in all of his glory. And Isaiah gets this vision, and we see here that the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, what's the train of a robe, and why is it filling the temple, and what does that even have to do with this vision of who Jesus is? Because the closest parallel we can come uh, up with today is probably at a wedding. At a wedding, you will see the bride, and she will have her wedding gown, and stylistically, there's a lot of different preferences, but uh, if today they have a long back of the robe, back of the uh, wedding dress, where the bridesmaid or the maid of honor may help them when the bride comes down, which is my favorite part, by the way, when the bride, when the doors are open and the bride and the groom looks at the bride and it's like, blah, and it's, you know, the guy cries, right? If the guy cries, like everybody's crying, but no guy has a pretty cry. It's a very ugly cry. And maybe people are crying because it's an ugly cry, but he looks back and he sees this beautiful bride coming down and she comes up and then the maid of honor takes the what? The train. The train of the dress. And Isaiah says here, The King Jesus on the throne has a train of his robe. And in ancient times, if a king wanted to display their power, their wealth, their prosperity, if a king wanted to display the breadth of their reign, they had a large train on their robe. And Isaiah says, the train of the robe was spilling over the side of the throne and down into the temple, and it was filling every square inch of the temple. I saw the king. We need a new reverence. We need to see God in a new, fresh way. Not a new revelation, but a reminder of who God has already revealed himself to be. He says, above 
Above the throne, there were seraphim. Each had six wings covering their faces. Why were they covering their faces? Very likely because they were in the presence of God constantly. And 1 Timothy 6 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. So they're covering their faces because of the light. They're covering their feet. Remember, Moses was on holy ground at the burning bush. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. They're covering their feet and they're flying. But more importantly, what are they saying? They're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. Now, when we want to emphasize something, we might put it in italics. Right? If you're texting someone and you want to emphasize something, you might use all caps. Just so you know, a lot of people translate that as you're shouting. <laughs> like, why are you shouting at me? I'm not. It's just all caps. But if God wants to emphasize something in his word, he repeats it. Holy, holy, holy. This is only found in one other passage of scripture here in Isaiah chapter 6 in the throne room of God where a celestial being is calling to another celestial being because a creature is getting the vision of the creator. And in Revelation chapter 4 where it's the throne room of God and John is a creature and he gets a vision of the creator and a celestial being is calling to other celestial beings, holy, holy, holy. Formerly, it's called the trihagion, right? Store that one away for a rainy day in Scrabble. I've never been very good at it, but there's one for you. I haven't checked with Webster. It may be only in a Bible dictionary, but the trihagion means thrice-repeated holiness. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah experiences the doorpost and threshold shaking, and he says, woe to me. He doesn't say woe to them. He doesn't say, oh, I've seen the holiness of God. Now he's going to get these people. He doesn't say, look at this terrible, God-forsaken land. We're going to fix them up right, aren't we, God? He looks in the mirror before he looks out the window. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And when we see God's holiness... We see our brokenness. When we see God's holiness, we see our fallenness and we recognize the need for grace. Only his holiness is repeated three times. You never find this, you never find any other attributes in the Bible repeated three times. Not love, 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 not peace, 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 not patience, patience, patience. You get the idea. You find this. Holy, holy, holy. But what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean that God is holy? And I used to think, oh, it just means that, not just, but it means that he's morally perfect. He's morally pure. He can never do anything wrong. He's holy. And that's true. But I'd like for us to maybe think about it like this. Listen to this quote. The holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendentally separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power, knowledge or wrath. Even everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes in divine holiness. 
So God is infinitely other. I think that's a, a, a great way to talk about holiness today. He is infinitely other. His love is infinitely other. It's an attribute that infiltrates and permeates all of his other attributes. His peace is infinitely other. His grace is infinitely other. God, as the old theologians like to say, God is transcendent. He is ineffable, which means that every word we would try to come up with to articulate the existence and the presence of God falls short. We can't even describe him. I think this is a great way to describe God's holiness because one of the first things that we often encounter when we encounter God is our own fear. Do you know the most repeated phrase in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God doesn't want us to run away in fear. God wants us to stand in awe in faith. I remember having an experience of what it felt like to be kind of in the presence of other I was a little bit of the other. I'd been to Africa three times. Uh, we went to Africa, uh, me and a friend of mine, to train local pastors because they could not afford to go to a Bible college or a seminary or a local uh, institute to get any type of theological training. So we went to Ethiopia and Malawi, uh, very different experiences in different parts of Africa, uh, but we went there to train local pastors. And I remember even getting on the plane in D.C., we flew Ethiopian air. So I remember getting on the plane in D.C., um, I was starting to experience what it was like to be the other, uh, that it, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of people that looked like me and acted like me from the Midwest. Uh, there were other people there on the plane. And then we get into Africa, and we get into the village of Katsikara in Malawi, and I realized that uh, you know, my language is not the only language that everybody speaks, right? And my way of thinking is not the only way that everyone else thinks. And my way of doing life is not the only way that everyone does life. So I was starting to feel like, oh, um, I'm a little bit of the other here. And we're going there and we're in this village where the lifespan is like 42. You know, they just started to get uh, electricity and, and some water in the last decade. And I remember stepping out in the middle of the night one night and because they didn't have electricity and have any lights, so they had no light pollution. And I remember looking up at the stars and all of these things happening at once. I can only describe what I felt as appropriately small. That I was not the center of the universe. That my way of thinking wasn't the center of the universe. And I think that's a good way to describe what we should feel when we experience the other, appropriately small, that we are creature and God is creator. And so if we are appropriately small as sent ones, then we don't come to others in a top-down attitude. Well, I'm better than, because in our culture, we do it this way. And we don't come to others with a I've got everything figured out mentality. We're willing to listen. We're eager to learn. We're eager to say, what can be in our relationship with you 
even though we may deeply disagree on lifestyles and theology and the way the world works, what can we learn from each other? What could be mutually beneficial? We don't come with a, we don't have any common ground. We come with a, well, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, so we're all in need of grace. Everybody needs it. And God said, everybody can have it. And when we are going to be effective sent ones, we have to have a new reverence. Secondly, we need to identify our unique calling. We've got to identify our unique calling. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Go and tell this people. I don't know if you are a right in your Bible kind of person or you're an underliner, or you're a highlighter on your iPad. But if you are, one word, this. Go and tell this people. Isaiah was sent to a specific place, to a specific people, in a specific circumstance, with a specific message. And notice what God says. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, I preached a message in, uh, on Genesis a while back where uh, God says, let us make man in our own image. And I said this, so I won't develop it a lot here, but I said that there that I don't necessarily think that this is a reference to the Trinity who, who will go for us, but more this is a royal we, such as a king or queen, even the Queen of England might use today, uh, we or us when she is the one speaking, but she's speaking on behalf of the royal cabinet. So this is a royal we where the king is saying, who will go on the king's behalf and talk to this people? And Isaiah says, after he's had this encounter with the holiness of God, the otherness of God, here I am, send me. Send me. Notice he takes personal responsibility. Send me. He didn't say this. Here I am. I've got a few people in mind for you, God. I've been thinking about them. In fact, you maybe even have laid a few of them on my heart. So I'm just going to let you know. No, he says, send me. Me, He takes personal responsibility and agency for the mission of God. Now, sometimes we don't want to say, send me. There's a few reasons we don't want to say, send me. We'd rather say, send them. We'd rather say, send them, perhaps because we don't necessarily want to have the king's interest in mind. We have our own interest in mind. We would rather say send them and not send me because I'm too busy sending myself for my own agenda, right? Or maybe on the other hand, we would rather say send them because we have an inappropriate sense of smallness. Oh, who, who, who am I, God? Who, you can't, who, who am I that you would even use me? Like, I'm not educated, and I'm not professional, and I'm not very articulate. And God, you know my story, and you know my sin, and you know my baggage, and you know all my idiosyncrasies and my weaknesses. Like, like who am I? No, I, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot better people to send. Send them. Send the professional, send the educated, send the articulate, the charismatic, send the worthy, send the strong, send the qualified. I think deep down we're terribly afraid of being inadequate. So what we're really saying is send in the adequate. And here is the reality of what God is saying to us. 
If God sends people who make much of their gifts, then they get the glory. But if God sends people who make much of their God, then God gets the glory. You see, that was a little preachy. We were preaching right there. I felt it. Did you feel it? I felt like we were preaching. Here's the thing. Isaiah says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I, I can't do this. What are you talking about? I, I got sin. It's a problem. It's a weakness. How are you going to use me, God, to speak on behalf? This is crazy. This is crazy. So God sends an angel, and the angel takes a set of tongs, and he grabs a coal from what? From underneath the what? The altar. What happened on the altar? Sacrifice. What would the sacrifice have dripped down onto the coal? Blood. So he takes the blood of a sacrifice and he atones for Isaiah's sin. Friends, the good news of God doesn't just cleanse us, but it qualifies us. Do you hear me? The blood doesn't just cleanse us, but it qualifies us. And says, I know everything about you. Of course I do. And it's you who I'm sending. I'm going to use you, not in spite of your weaknesses, but in and through your weaknesses. That's how people are going to see my strength. So often we're just, well, oh, we got to sweep our weaknesses under the rug. I have problems. We've got to sweep those under the rug. No, 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 no. Paul says, no, no. I boast in my weaknesses because that's how people know God's strength in and through me. But he says, go and tell this people. And I'm convinced that if it was a different prophet to a different kingdom, then it arguably would have been a different message because he was called to a specific location and place in time as his specific self to be that self and bear God's message. Sometimes we are so caught up in comparing who we are and our calling and our gifts and our weaknesses and our strengths and what we do and how much money we make and how much money we don't make and how are our kids doing, how are the grandkids doing. We're so caught up in the comparison trap, we can't even be free to live out who God has called us to be. I want you to listen to this brief passage from uh, Brendan Manning, who's one of my favorite authors. This is from his book, The Glimpse of Jesus. Um, and he, he's actually quoting another theologian, but he says this, to be open to the way, the truth, and the life, we should find the unique task and expression of divine love Jesus wants in our lives. There are many tempting possibilities to care in ways that are at odds with the way Christ wants to express care in us. We may try to live a style of love we are not called to. We may want to concretize our care for people in a task or movement not attuned to our individual nature. We may do so to please others because we crave to be liked. Or we may want to belong to a popular social or apostolic movement. We join in blindly in spite of the fact that their particular manifestation of Christ's love is not necessarily ours. Jesus wants to set us free from the comparison trap, from trying to live someone else's story. Me and my wife say this to other young couples all the time. It's your story and your dynamic. You've got to own it. Don't let anybody tell you how you have to do it. It's our story. 
Be free from comparing yourself to others and how it works for them. What works for you to build your life? God says, here's the text. But other than that, I'm giving you a whole lot of freedom. Use your noggin. Discern. Pray. Try. You might fail. That's okay. You learn twice as much from failure as you do success. And then keep going. I didn't always know that I was going to be standing behind a Cadillac pulpit. In fact, when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Um, maybe you felt like that as well. But I could sing. I was in choir. And so I auditioned for some scholarships. I got a vocal scholarship to a local community college. So I did that. And then I transferred to CIU. I finished my music uh, major degree and I doubled in Bible. And then my first job became, you just kind of fell in my lap, became at a church. I was a worship leader for youth. So I was leading junior high band, high school band. We were rocking and rolling. And uh, I remember that I, you know, I was doing primarily music. I wasn't always preaching and teaching. In fact, one summer, I spent the summer in Northwest Indiana as a part of what was called the Indiana Revival Team. It was a bit of a joke and an irony to me because there was no revival that summer in Northwest Indiana, even though we called ourselves the Indiana Revival Team. I almost went off on a tangent, I'll save it for later, but I wanted to sign up for the preacher. There was a worship leader, a youth guy, and a preacher, and I'd never done it before. I was like, I'm gonna sign up for this. I wanna try this out. I've always wanted to try it. So I go on this, and I have the opportunity that summer to step in the pulpit. And I remember this, wow, I really like doing this, I feel alive when I do it, and I believe from what people are saying with feedback that it is somewhat effective. And so I began to work at this, and people said to me, hey, are you, are you, you do this? Is this your gift? I said, I don't know. I don't know. Give me feedback. Let me help. Let me grow this. So I began to work at this, began to hone that in, and began to grow in this. And I, last week, I spoke to the senior high uh, on Sunday night, and I loved every, uh, every minute of it. And I got in the car afterwards, and I was talking with one of my daughters, and I said, you know, um, if I had one gift to give back to the world that I think tears a little corner off the edge of the darkness, then it would be my preaching and my teaching. That would be the one thing. I said, I, I enjoy it thoroughly. I feel the most alive when I'm able to give back like that. And I, I hear feedback that it, it connects with people. And she looked over at me and she said, just one gift, Daddy. What about your humor? <laughs> she thinks I'm funny. But what, what is your gift to give back to the world to tear off the corners of the darkness? And it's going to look different than your neighbor's. It's going to look different from mine. God calls people in all different ways to do all sorts of different things. Business leaders and coaches and teachers. And God gives us a unique task. Have you identified that unique task for you? You remember the story of Esther. She was in a very unfortunate predicament, and she was going to choose to go before the king and ask for the king to let her people, you know, be free and not be put to death, which was about to happen. There was a conspiracy against her people, but she, if she approached the king on her own terms and not in his time, she could die. 
And this is advice to Esther in Esther 4.14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 2022, Lexington, South Carolina. There's no mistake in you being here. There's no mistake in me being here. But who knows if we have not come into these royal positions for such a time as this. What is your new or your renewed calling that only you can do in and through God's grace? Lastly, if we're going to be effective sent ones, and I'll be brief here, we need to persevere at our post. We need to persevere at our post. Isaiah prophesied not through just the reign of one king, but through four kings. Do you know how many of those kings listened to the message of Isaiah? Only one, Hezekiah. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 says this, Be ever hearing, be ever understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and their eyes closed. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What is he saying? This is not the whole of Isaiah's message. God is not telling him, you go say this every time, you know, you talk to these people. He's summarizing for Isaiah, guess what? You're going to speak on my behalf and nobody's going to listen. And nobody's going to like you. And they're going to talk about you at lunch. And they're going to slander you around the water cooler at work. And they're going to make up things about you that are untrue. And they're going to persecute you. As Jesus said, they persecuted the prophets that were sent in God's name. But you are called to be faithful with your task. Kind of reminds me of Jesus in John 6 when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, I don't have any idea what this guy means. And Jesus never saw fit to explain himself. Did you ever notice that in the Gospels? And all of a sudden people are like, what does he mean? This is too hard of a teaching. And the crowd thins. Isaiah spent 60 years, 740 B.C., 680 B.C., 60 years preaching somewhat effective, mostly ineffective sermons. But he was called to persevere. As Galatians 6.9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We sow, we pray, we water, we encourage. We sow, we pray, we water, we encourage. Sometimes we get to harvest, sometimes we do not. Sometimes it is for a decade from now or a century from now that someone else gets to harvest. But we sow in faith. We don't sow in sight. If you sow in sight, you're going to be discouraged. I don't know if this is making a difference. I don't really see any fruit. I don't really see if it's impacting anybody. We don't sow in sight because you will be discouraged and you'll give in to despair. We sow in faith. I'm just doing what the king has called me to do. I'm scattering seeds of good news everywhere. I'm scattering it recklessly. I'm not going to become weary in doing good. And I'm not worried about the fruit. That's his responsibility anyways. And let me encourage you with this. A lack of fruit does not indicate a lack of faithfulness. God says, you be faithful, you surrender the fruit to me. 
surrender the fruit to me. If we're going to be effective sent ones, we've got to see God as infinitely other. We need a new reverence. We need to identify our unique calling. How has God called you specifically right now in your own unique way to express care for the world? And we need to persevere at our post. I remember that lunch I was having with my parents when I said, hey, this is it. Ultimate surrender to God. Wherever he wants me to go, whatever he wants me to do. My wife prayed the same way in a different, different way, but the same prayer. And we came together in our marriage. I didn't have to be single. Ooh. I'll take that as an amen. That's an amen. That's an amen. He knows. But we kept praying this prayer. Send me. Send me. Send me. Two years ago, we prayed that prayer. Send me. A year ago, we prayed that prayer. Send me. It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of letting go. How are you speaking now? What are you calling us to do? We are called to be faithful with our task. Friends, would you pray this prayer with me? But let's don't pray it flippantly. And let's not rush into it. Let's pray it with faith. Let's pray it with courage. And let's pray it with surrender, anticipating how God might speak to us. Heavenly Father, you are infinitely other, holy, and you reign on high, seated on the throne, and the train of your robe fills the temple, and there are creatures in your throne room that declare your otherness and all creation wakes up in this beautiful morning doing your bidding. And we here today, even with our fallen and broken selves, say to you, God, send us, send me. To that family member, send me. To the neighbor across the street, send me. To the people who are underserved, send me. To those who need an encouraging word, send me. To those who are in despair, send me. To those who struggle to find meaning and purpose, send me. For those who need to find a job with an employer that will treat them fairly with integrity in a Christ-honoring way, send me. God, we renew our prayer of surrender to you today. Send us. We trust you for the fruit. We let that go. And we ask only that we would be faithful. We pray this in Christ's name.